you know, you got to know the right place to apply pressure and when to get out of pressure because there's that fine line. And it's the way with dealing with people. You got to know when to. In politics, stepping on people's toes without messing up their shine, knowing how to make the right thing easy and the wrong thing hard. I think a lot about things I learned in, in, in training horses. Now, there's a lot of people in life, in Congress is a place where you see it, where they're over-promoted and underdeveloped. We see wrecks like that happen also in the horse world. Over-promoted, underdeveloped, first time they go to the big time show and they stand up on their hind legs and walk out. Or, you know, they run off on the end and they, they don't turn around when the cow draws them back. Because they were forced, that they didn't have private preparation, at least to public mastery. On this episode of Taking the Reins, I sat down with Josh Burkeen, someone who I spent a lot of time with riding horses and learning from him and his dad about the cutting horse industry. He grew up in the cutting horse industry. It was even a two-time national qualifier for the NCHA Eastern Championship show. And after college, Josh started training cutting horses for Turdish prospects as a non-pro and has been raising quality cow horses for over 20 years. But currently, he's a member of Congress. And in this episode, we sit down and talk about how horse training relates to career-mindedness in the political realm and the world that he currently lives in. So with that said, here's another episode of Taking the Reins. From Mississippi State University in Starkville, Mississippi, this is Taking the Reins podcast. If you love all things horses, Get ready for a relatable and educational look into the lives of horses and the people who love them. Now here's our host, Clay Cavender. Skinny. What 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 uh, what do you weigh compared to what you weighed when we were hanging out in college? Probably not probably the same. That's, that's yeah. One ninety eight, two hundred lean mean fighting machine, man. You, man, I'm, I'm a good 20 pounds heavier than I was when we were All you did was lift and work out when we were in college and eat, eat boiled chicken. <laughs> That's the difference, man. I quit eating just boiled chicken and, yeah, that's right. You're glad you're doing this, Josh. I appreciate you doing this. Um, sorry, then I didn't realize fully that we had, had canceled on you, so I'm sorry about that. Yeah, that's fine. We made it work. What I'm trying to do with this is, I don't know if you've listened to any of them, but it all goes back to horses in some capacity as this i've always said this i think the horse is a tool that we use to better ourselves in terms of life skill development confidence whatever it may be and so having that background you know when i met you i'm trying to think of all the things you were you were into obviously we're going to talk about you being the state ffa officer and president for oklahoma but you were also like on the spirit team is that what they call it oklahoma state with bullet and all that good stuff well, I, I picked up his crap, man. <laughs> well, that's part of the horse business right there, isn't it? <laughs> but there's there's a lot to that. And then, of course, we grew up not too far from each other. I know you're from Colgate. I'm from Idabel, Oklahoma. And so I remember so many times going back and hanging out with your family down there. And, and I'm trying to remember, but I want to say that was probably the first time I ever got to get on a cutting horse. Your dad, Zane, I remember him working two-year-olds by himself watching a cow did he have dogs was he using border collies that was where i was going he's he's watching a cow working a two-year-old whistling at a dog yeah as his turn back man 
And that's because Ron and I left for college. He, but, had to, he had to find a cheap way to keep doing what he'd been doing. He so was he, he was self-sufficient. And I, that's awesome. And I still remember that from, you know, that's been, what, 25 years ago? So that's yeah, a, I, remember, I remember I had that Quano Lena Colt that uh, that I was riding, and you're like, that sucker would annoy the crap out of me. He is too hot. And, <laughs> well, it's a total different that. experience, right? The, those horses are just they're just different. They're built different. He was a he was raining bread a little bit, but uh, yeah, that's it's funny. Man. Yeah, I remember that vividly. But now we'll just address the elephant in the room. Of course, on the podcast, people won't get to see what I'm seeing, but. I see a total different new guy. You're a U.S. congressman, obviously from Oklahoma in the House of Representatives. And here's the magic question for me, knowing you as a kid. Where in the world did all that come from? Because I wasn't expecting that I was hanging out in an apartment room in Stillwater with a future congressman. How did the politics game play into all this? Is this something that you had in, in your mind, or did it develop later? Um, man, Clay, I think it's just a a progression of submitting my life to Lord what do you what do you want me to do and you know when you and I were hanging out I was passionate about seeing young adults come into purposeful existence and you know, as you remember I used to really enjoy going in, in, in speaking in high schools I think I was doing that when we were in college a lot and it just you know that's such a social oriented gathering speaking and and it's just this progression of events it led to all those relationships i was developing you start developing favorability among people and then of course politics is so much about relationships and then just prayerfully felt led to run um when i ran for the state legislature the first time but ultimately it's just a matter of as a christian seeking god's pathway for my life you know it's funny you you bring up that perspective because just in a recent episode i had with a friend of mine taylor mcintosh we talk about it's all about relationships you know so much of what we do is built and predicated on developing relationships and of course friendships along the way so i think that's it's definitely a, a point of reiteration for one of those life skill developments it's all about relationships right it's also about integrity, right? In terms of what I'm doing mm -hmm. today, people are are so used to people in public service being actors on a stage, and I think I would say this: that God was developing my character in those young leadership capacities. He was developing my character on the back of a horse. I often think about just even the way you approach a, a cutter or a rainer. You know, I've had some rainer. Eight, I'm thinking of one particular rainer reject that was blown up in part. And, you know, you got to know the right place to apply pressure and when to get out of pressure because there's that fine line. And it's someone with dealing with people. you got to know when to, you know, to stick a spur in them <laughs> and, and when to relieve that pressure. And you know this, in training a horse, it's all about letting the pressure off for them to flow into where, where there's relaxation. And in politics, stepping on people's toes without messing up their shine, knowing how to make the right thing easy and the wrong thing hard, I think a lot about things I learned in, in, in training horses. And I think that's where people in the cowboy lifestyle, being a straight shooter, there, there's like a subtle expectation anybody who is in the horse world, the cowboy world, that you just mean what you say and you say what you mean and you don't beat around the bushes. Um, but then, then the, the professional horseman 
doesn't just keep a spur hung in the rib cage all the time, too. So that, let's go back to that, because this is what I wrote. I actually wrote this down about you when I was thinking about how I wanted this to all go, and then I looked into your, you know, trying to do a little research, looked into your um, your uh, website, and it had these exact same things written down. This is what I wrote. Let's go back to the root of who you are, and I try to think about who Josh Burkeen is, the guy I know, and this is what I wrote. Christian, husband, dad, and horseman. And then when I looked up your website, I mean, you had that verbatim written about the description of who you are. Is that the correct order? As long as it started with, with my relationship with Christ, then I would say yes. Right. And my wife second, my children. And then, you know, what we do for a living um, after that, much further down the list. I, I think there's such a, a need for people to really have an identity, especially in the cultural rot we have today, based in who you are and not what you do. Well, how does the horseman fall into that? So the, you've kind of started talking about that as far as I love the analogy of how you work with people, uh, developing relationships, and all goes back to horse training stuff. We've And I've done a ton of discussion on this podcast about training techniques and instances where we do just that. We apply cue, wait for a response, reinforce positive, negative. Uh, and you've kind of gone into that. But expand a little bit more on how maybe horses were a solid part of your beginning in even as your first leadership role as a state FFA officer, then working for Senator Coburn and moving into this political role, how has horses helped to shape that? I can remember a number of years being in a round pen and watching about the time that Ray Hunt's method of starting Colts back in the 90s really was taking off. Then it was Clinton Anderson, and you know, all that started bringing itself into the cutting horse world. I spent a lot of time in a round pen watching a horse run around and around. Because <laughs> I, you know, my dad's st- statement training cutters uh, when I was in my 20s and he was in his 40s, 50s was, "I'm too valuable to get hurt. You get on the on that stuff, right?" <laughs> and so I spent a lot of time starting colts. I probably started 500 colts. I may be embellishing a little bit, but I don't think so. I mean, I a lot of years. First, it was picking stalls. I know I picked that many uh, stalls. Uh, for that many different horses over the years. And then you get promoted by the time you're 12, 13 to, to starting colts, two-year-olds. Just watching horses, and you just start thinking about how's this. You're standing, you're standing around all night. I remember having a, a particular, uh, I guess she was a filly then. and she, I mean, I was all night in that round pen before she finally would start facing up and let me get a hand on her. It took me all night to, to be able to just touch this, this brood mare. She left, I turned her into a broodmare, um, and then her colts were a wreck, so she got kicked out. <laughs> they, they had the same temperament as mama. But, you know, just watching that and how that applies to life until we finally submit to authority and go, okay, I get it. Start licking our lips. Mm-hmm. All right, God, I get it. I got, I got it. And that he will put us on display. You never get into the show ring if you, you know, are wild and untamed. And I think just just in just speaking about life principles, all of us naturally want to be untouched. All of us naturally want to do our own thing, think our own thoughts, do what we want to do. Um, but in God's math, it's the same math in training a horse. We can do that. We can spend a lifetime, forty years in the wilderness, running around in circles. We can finally get face up and go, "All right, Master," start licking our lips and and submit. And the more the quicker you submit, the quicker that you allow. The, the, the breaking process, humility, thinking you're not all that, the quicker you can do that. I love the definition. I think it's probably still the definition in the AQHA guidebook for reining horses. Now, I don't 
You know, I don't have the definition for what NCHA says in the cutting horse world I came from, but I dabbled just enough in the rain horse deal in college. I memorized the statement that, that a reigning horse is one that's willfully guided, willfully controlled. What a lesson for life. That you stick, put me in a walker or a trot, I don't quit being in the walker or the trot until I'm cued by a three-stage stop or a subtle shutdown. Um, you park me facing the barn, I don't take off one step back towards the barn until I'm cued, willfully guided, willfully controlled. And the moment that, that you know, a rider, all of us that sat on the saddle and trained, the moment I can feel that that horse um, is willfully guided, willfully controlled, that's when I know they're ready to go, you know, to another environment and put my hand down. And it's life. God, God promotes us once we pass the small tests. So how did I end up in Congress? Because I passed the little tests of, in private. You don't have any, you don't get public exaltation until you have private mastery when nobody's looking. Now, there's a lot of people in life, in Congress is a place where you see it, where they're over-promoted and underdeveloped. We see wrecks like that happen also in the horse world. Over-promoted, underdeveloped, the first time they go to the big-time show and they stand up on their hind legs and walk out. Or, you know, they run off on the end and they, they don't turn around when the cow draws them back because they were forced that they didn't have private preparation at least to public mastery so i you know a lot, a lot of years just going god i, I see it i see it in the me, me trying to to uh, bring about a result to get something to the show pen how much more do you want to glorify yourself through people who are willfully guided willfully controlled and those are some ugly words in today's society and that humility kind of describing brokenness you know the submission that's not that's those are hard words to choke down especially i'm sure in washington dc and some of those you know ego is such a it's a driver isn't it pride and ego is all such a driver in everything whether it's the horse business or career politics or whatever it is it's yeah and i don't want that to sound like i come up here and it's follow me boys i'm i'm in the freedom caucus i'm one of those that you know stands and and will take hard hard stances that's also comes from my cowboy upbringing you know dad saying get behind the calf and run it up to shoot son you got to get serious about it you can't just monkey around back there you know having to force those calves up a shoot that part of that cowboy lifestyle of for the people that have inward fortitude it's shaped somewhere in your in young adult life and then you have people you know get in politics that they may have humility they may have um, submission to authority but it gets perverted in that they are playing to the masses and they're giving away free candy for nations going bankrupt. All the elements to try to turn a country around that's headed off a fiscal cliff, for any of your listeners who would care, uh, we are headed towards bankruptcy in this nation because we've got too many people who play to the masses. So when I'm saying submission to authority, I'm talking about playing to the audience of one. Right. My creator who I held an account to. And then I'm being gentle in the way that I respond to people, but it doesn't mean I don't take hard stance. It means that the way I go about taking those hard stands is um, people just know that I'm not going to be a shove over. I mean what I say and say what I mean. Let's go back to that same principle when you just talk about when you were FFA president. So many of the things we talk about, like 4-H, FFA, judging teams, all that kind of stuff, really helps develop the life skills and the character of who we are. It's a, it's, and it's not, it is about learning about livestock, obviously, right? But it, it is a tool and a principle to be able to develop who we really need to be or should be to put us in the vice a little bit, to put some pressure on us and, and teach us how to handle that kind of thing. How do you think that that influence from even the ground grassroots level of FFA helped to bring you to this point of being able to be firm in who you are? Yeah, public speaking skills, um, 
made in terms of just what were the soft skills that I developed, interpersonal communication skills. I learned so much of that in my training at FFA as a student, as a, as a youth. But then, you know, and I hope it's still the same way. When I was in FFA in Oklahoma, through alumni camp and all the different, uh, you were big in 4-H, if I remember correctly. I was. You have in 4-H. Mm, right. Yeah. Um, but on the FFA side, we would have all these, you know, convention and conferences, and, and you didn't bring people in. And, and these people would take biblical truths and they would put it in a secular format. But I knew because I knew my Bible, these were biblical truths. And when I was a state FFA officer, I was giving young adults biblical truths. Now, I was making sure that you know, it wasn't so he- heavy that you know, it was uh, offensive. But I was op- prying open mouths with laughter to pour in some truth because um, I knew that there's no new wisdom under the sun. And I knew for me and what, it, what biblical truth had meant for me that FFA was a conduit to be able to um, introduce people to values, principle, and a God who loves them. And if they would learn to play to the audience of one, then they wouldn't constantly be chasing image management and trying to make themselves acceptable to the masses. I wanted to be an FFA, and I was, I was probably a freshman in high school. We didn't, I went to this little country school to eighth grade, ninth grade. You know, I'm going to go to the FFA meeting, and I was sitting there, and, and our FFA wasn't extremely organized you know there's kind of like there's two ffa groups i've seen the excellent and the ordinary kind of you know <laughs> we had kind of ordinary but i remember i went to the first meeting and, and i'm sitting there looking around didn't know anybody and then all of a sudden somebody jumped up and said i am the corn i stand by the door or or <laughs> and I, and I, thought, I don't know if this is for me you know? Station your Station yeah. your I don't know. This is. I, I don't think this is for me, man. I think I'll just. I do my own thing. But, and you know, it's, I wrote a paper years ago about what I did was I surveyed these people that were on judging teams, and what yeah. I wanted to know was how did one year of college judging teams affect your career? And the the re, the way you could fill this out was you had to have been a member of livestock, dairy, horses. Didn't matter. I didn't care. Yeah at Texas A&M when I was there, and you had to be five years out of your college you remember, career. Do you remember me getting to go to Yale practice with you? Oh, you yeah. Were, you you uh, came down. That was O3. That was oh, O3. Yeah. yeah. Oklahoma State was still in the – A&M was still in the Big 12. Oklahoma State was playing there. But uh, anyway, I asked these people – Dixie Chicken. I remember you taking yeah, it to Dixie Chicken. <laughs> we, yeah, Dixie Chicken is a staple. You have to do that. Uh, but you had to be five years out of your career and up to 75 years of age to answer this survey. And one day I got a phone call from a guy. I pick up the phone. He is mad. And he found this survey and found out that he, he's 80 years old. And so he felt like he couldn't answer the survey. And he was really angry with me because he wanted to input what the experience was for himself when he was 20 years old from being on a judging team. That influence of those lives, those soft skills you were talking about had been so impactful for him that even at 80 years old, he realized the relevance of those leadership opportunities that we have through FFA, 4-H, judging teams, whatever it may be. Lots of stuff there. But I thought that was interesting that he was that old and he still wanted to. His input was valuable for sure. How are you staying involved in the horse business now that you're involved in politics from a day-to-day thing? Your schedule is busy, man. I. Yeah, so look, I um, I don't know, not quite 10 years ago, I uh, sold a whole lot of what broodmares I had left and bought my first semi-truck. I got out, I was in the state legislature for a while, 
Then I got out of it, went back in the free market and converted a bunch of brood mares into semi truck. And uh, so I'm, I'm down, man. I've got one uh, brood mare in full to one fabulous time. If anybody, I'll make a, I'll make a plug for one fabulous time stud horse down in uh, Whitesboro, Texas area, but he's a shapey blue roan and his mama side, he's, he's about one time Pepto and is on his mama side. He, he's got a mare named Cat Mist and she's produced almost a million in the cutting pen. And this colt is a three, four year old. I don't think he won, but like 20,000. But Clay, I went and saw his hip and he had one of those nice round apple hips tied real deep down on the underside. And, for, and, and he's roan, and that's a prerequisite. He's a blue roan, yeah. brother. He's a blue roan. And, and I actually talked to his trainer who said he wasn't cold backed. And the older I've gotten, the more that. that plays into my uh, calculation is if when I first step up on one, if they're going to hump up and try to buck me off, not just first ride, but you know, 30 days into it. That changes post 40, doesn't it? Brother. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, I've got some compression in my spine for all those colts I broke. I I, I actually still, you don't know impacts the horse industry. I sleep a certain way. (laughs) Right. Right. All the, all the colts that I, you know, was on. And, uh, so anyways, so I'm excited about uh, now my family, extended family. They're still much more involved than I am, and I've got a few cows. But but uh, just the busyness of it all, and I'll tell you something else. I mean, back when I used to stand, not only had I had like 70 brood fillies. I was trying to convert into brood mares 15, 20 years ago, and I stood Doc's Phoebe. If anybody in the cutting horse era will remember, there's a horse called Doc's Phoebe. He was the son of Hickory. I stood him in his old age. He had colts that won a significant amount, you know, multiple disciplines. So I had a breeding program at college and, you know, was trying to train, uh, starved out trying to train as a non-pro in the cutting horse world. By the time you and I were hanging out, you know, uh, when you'd come to see me, I think that, that one time. Um, but uh, I wish I was more heavily involved in the horse business. It's just between you keeping up with the vaccination schedule and if you don't have your own stud horse and the cost to get a mare in foal and the cost to keep them in foal, man, and rotavirus. I didn't even know rotavirus was such a big deal, you know, because, you know, my deal, I, I was had my own stud horse and I wasn't taking mares to anybody. I was so there's just a lot to keeping a mare in foal and, and keeping healthy babies on the ground these days. Yeah, the purchase price is the, is the cheapest cost. And mare care. Oh, my gosh, yeah. man. Yeah, I, I was talking to the facility the other day. They're charging 30 bucks a day for outside yeah. america it's it's yeah. wild yeah but gosh the horse market's great as far as prices go yeah. sale prices are great yeah I, that's been shocking so about the time after you know raising colts for 20 years when i heavily downsized that's about the time that when the, the market, market went up yeah thanks josh you're getting out more the more you got out the more <laughs> I, I, i'll tell you something's interesting about the time i got out i called some some of you watch listeners would, would know steve frisca and uh he's probably steve I, he has transitioned more from the Clovis horse sale world to like Western bloodstock and the cutting horse world. And Steve's well known across the country. I called Steve and a good cutting friend of my family's, Galen Wells. And I called both of them about the time I was transitioning out of the horse world, starting to save the equipment business. And I said, man, I, and I was training still then, even when I was in the state legislature, I was in the roping horse market. I was taking colts, putting a good handle on them and selling them in the, in the, in the uh, uh, roping horse world as much as any other place. Just because you know, I was taking what I knew in the cutting horse world of getting them leg pressure broke and really bridle savvy, and and I was it was a good market for me. And I called those guys. It's like 2016, 2017. I'm like, I need somebody that's raising some good colts that's trustworthy and honest. That when they sell you colts, you can stand. You know, they're they're going to be sound. And and uh, I remember from the feedback I was getting, trying to reach out to some guys in the industry. 
knowing that the broodmare deal numbers were down because they're just like, they're not out there. Nobody's raising these kind of colts. And then right after that, we see the explosion of what these horses start bringing because people just were drudging through it, trying to, you know, keep selling colts when they weren't bringing a whole lot. But boy, it's really paid off the last several years. Yeah. You know, we moved, I don't know what it was, everybody had to move to online, and that's another thing. I had a podcast about this, me and a buddy of mine in Florida, talking about how moving to online sales was actually a really good thing. I mean, the, the market has opened completely, right, Instead of versus private treaty or, or even a live auction. You've reached the masses, so to speak. So it's, it's wild what it's done. Let me ask you this, Josh. You know, so much of what we do in the horse business is is – you got to know things. Obviously, you, it's about what you know, but it is more, I would say, in my opinion, about who you know. How has the connections you've made in the horse world, has it affected or helped you through connections in the political world? Has, has any of those two worlds overlapped at all? Oh, yeah. I mean, I just mentioned Steve Friska. My budget committee chairman is a guy named Jody Arrington, who I just think the world of. He's just a really, really good man. He's got a, a true heart, authentic uh, Bible-believing Christians from West Texas, and and Steve Riskup, who's from Mule, Muleshoe, and Jody, and then Steve's one of Steve's daughters actually works for Jody. So I get up here. One of my very first connections is with with Jody Arrington, and because of Steve Riskup, and I'm on the budget committee with with uh, Jody, and Jody is a fan of my old boss Tom Coburn, uh, who was a heavy fiscal hawk. So that's a prime example, you know from all across the country because the years years ago my granddad used to supply horses out to a feed yard out in Hereford, Texas. I'd break all those colts in addition to my dad training cutters. And so so I've been I've been out in, in Jody's congressional district to the largest ranch where it used to be the largest ranch horse sale that Steve and them used to run um, for many years at Clovis Horse Sale. That used to be a huge horse sale. I'm not sure anymore. Yeah. Shawnee and Clovis, they were the big ones, weren't they? Yeah, and of course, I, I sold horses at, at uh, Shawnee, and, and I, I don't think they're in Shawnee anymore. I think they triangles moved to, like, Oklahoma City area more. So I, I mean, that tells you how long it's been yeah. since I sold them. Yeah, me too. Been a while. In your opinion, what, what's the most important of all traits or strengths, if you will, someone needs to be successful that is shared between what you're talking about in the life of the horse industry and politics? Man, I think just trustworthiness. People know you to, to be trustworthy, and they know that what you're saying is not going to be found out as you said it's something else. I think that, and look, apply that to marriage, trustworthiness in marriage. What wife wouldn't say, you know what, I can put up with the fact he doesn't do a whole lot of dishes or, or uh, vacuum, but I, when, I know he's faithful. I know he's trustworthy. I, I, and, you know, my kids, I, my dad's dependable. So I think just trustworthiness. I, you go show a, a horse. You need to know, you know, even if they're open caliber, if you can't trust them, <laughs> non-pro, you know, type that you know, you put your hand down, they're going to be there for you. This may be a easy, I don't know, you may think this is an easy question, but something I was thinking about, you know, as I get older, we're roughly the same age. And going back and being, if we well, could, you're older than me. Yeah, I know. Not by much. When you get over 40, it don't matter anymore. <laughs> if you could go you went great before i did and for uh, your audience you may or may not know what you what i know you went great before i know there was one particular spot you I, went it's a birthmark I still have it still there <laughs> <laughs> i'm surprised you remember all that of course i do but you know if you could go back i still i think about man you want to tell stories on me i could tell so many stories on you too <laughs> if you could go back though and talk to those guys 18, 19, 20 years old, 
What's some points of advice you would give versus the the ex, more experienced Josh? Uh, make sure your relationship with God is yours. It's legitimate because I don't know anybody in life who's, who's not going to go through brokenness. And make sure that that, uh, that that you have a true understanding of purpose in life that comes only through being uh, created to glorify Him in your life. And if you if you find your valuation by how much money you think you're going to make or your title or position or it's going down the list, you're going to be surely disappointed when you hit the hard times. When you get your emotional master's degree uh, or you get your emotional doctorate degree, because everybody's going to go through hard seasons in their life. And that's when the, that's when you're going to get tested. When the pressure's on, when it's when it's hot summertime and you're grinding it through. I'm, I'm going back to a horse analogy here. And a lot of those horses will just mentally blow up. Um, you're going to go through those seasons where pressure is going to be applied, and you got to be able to, to to make it to the end. Best piece of advice: If I'm doing a graduation ceremony or whatever, make sure that you know your heavenly Father who loves you. He's got a plan for you. Here's what I would add to that too, because I agree with you completely. But I'd also add to that when you say those things, it almost and we've heard them all our lives. It almost sounds like you make these certain choices, and all good things will come. Yeah, I'm not saying that. That is not what you're saying. <laughs> right. That's you're not what you're saying. I don't look, you look, that master's degree or that PhD, I'm talking about emotionally. You, you've got the PhD in legitimacy. I don't. I'm, I'm talking about emotional master's degree, emotional PhD. Everybody's going to go through hard times in your life. I don't care if it, what choices you make, everybody's going to go through them. And what is going to get you through those hard times and through brokenness is going to be those who, you know, will bail out on life, bail out on themselves, bail out on their commitments to in relationships to others. It'll be determined by your stickle. All right, a horse goes to bucking pretty hard, and you got two feet out of the stirrups, and and you you think, man, I'm just gonna jump off. No, that never that's when you out. get hurt. <laughs> you hang on. I don't care if you just got one pinky left underneath the underneath the pad. <laughs> and you're off halfway, both feet. You hang on, and and if your relationship with God's like that. In the hard seasons of life, it's 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 the stickum that you're going to have. Well, I know we only got like eight more minutes, according to Ben. He's only he's got you on a short leash today. Here's another question. My last question for you. I got two actually. Just give us a quick rundown, kind of. I, and I'm curious, just as the casual observer here, what is the country boy from Oklahoma? What's his average day like in Washington D.C.? Because those two things don't um, go together, do they? Like, uh, it looks like just the reality is I'm up here scratching my head. I, I didn't do that on purpose, but if you watch what I just just done, scratching my head, wondering what's it going to take to get the American people to understand how bad we are compared to where we were once as a nation, a nation that has got cultural rot because we've turned away from biblical truths. We don't know what right is, what wrong is. Um, we we call that which is evil good, and then our our debt and our deficit spending this year a total spend for this country for almost 100 percent of our defense spending 100 percent of our education spend energy spend what's known as our discretionary budget which is only now one-third of our total spend two-thirds of it is mandatory spend that's where medicare medicaid social security food stamps those are all mandatory all congress does now is just adjust the eligibility one-third of our budget is where the 12 appropriation bills that you constantly hear congress debating talking about only one-third are we appropriating money towards 
That's $1.7 trillion of a $6.5 trillion spend because Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, all that other eats up so much of the budget. $1.7 trillion is our total discretionary spend. We argued over all year. You know what our deficit was last year? $1.7 trillion. That means 100% of everything we're spending right now is borrowed from our kids and our grandkids. We are financially on life support as a country. There's only 11 other countries that have more debt to GDP ratio indebtedness than what, than what we do as a nation. And I'm up here scratching my head thinking, what's it going to take for people to start stop playing the games up here, can't really amputate? we got to start amputating federal expenditures, federal agencies, federal programs. Or we're going to be on slow suicide watch until devaluation of our currency eats our lunch. And we've already lost 20% of our dollar value just in the last five years. We're, we are as a nation headed towards bankruptcy. And so my average day is up here scratching my head trying to figure out what's it going to take to get Congress to cut a dollar. It's, it's just unbelievable how many people are not taking our debt and our deficit serious up here. And look, I get it. Nobody wants to go back home and say, I cut, I cut X amount out of education, right? But Clay, the math doesn't lie. We're in trouble. And people are going to have to start electing people who are straight shooters, who tell the truth, who care more about the future of their kids and their grandkids than they care about getting reelected, have the intestinal fortitude playing to the audience of one, not trying to please the masses. And most people in politics, that's what they do. They go, what's it going to take to get me reelected? And that's why we're in such problems. If you don't have these core values we've talked about, then we're not going to have a solution to this, this country's problems. You know, it's wild about hearing you say that. Obviously, it's depressing, right? But it's it's it's, it's the truth. But it's also crazy how there is people just as fired up as you are on the other side of the the topic. And that's what that's what's why we're so polarized, right? In so many different perspectives of of where we're going and all that kind of stuff. Let me, and I, because I don't know if your audience would care to know this, but I sat in the budget committee meeting this morning. We're talking about having a framework for a fiscal commission to come up and pronounce you know adjustments for us okay I'm, I'm for it but at the end of the day we've got to have the courage to make the right tough votes and yet that other that other part for those of us that are saying we've got to start cutting significantly the other said we'll just raise more revenue i mean when i was training horses and in the state legislature and i had a part-time state legislature or, or when i got out and i was and had my heavy equipment business my dozer excavator trucking business for those of us that hustled in the free market on average, we're collecting revenue. 20% of our GDPs, on average, is our revenue. People say, well, just raise more revenue. For those of us that had the hustle in the free market, I would tell you, there were times where I was trying to figure out how can I pay the sales tax on that piece of equipment that I bought. It's tough to make a living. America used to be the place where you could start a new business with ease. It's not that way anymore. And so for those that, you know, if, if all you've ever done is have the safety net you don't understand that. And for those that come from the context of, well, we'll just raise more revenue, 20% on a historic average of our nation is about, in relation to our GDP, it's about 20% revenue. Anytime it gets above that, there will always be a tax cut. Anytime it gets below that, there's a tax increase. We don't have a revenue problem. We're like 18 to 19% revenue percentage to our, our GDP. We've got a spending problem. So I would just I push back and let me say this: all this discussion would make the rich pay more. You know the one top one percent pay in total, terms of total income tax? They pay forty percent of all income tax. The top one percent. Guess what the top fifty uh, percent of all income earners pay in terms of the income tax? They pay ninety-seven percent of all income taxes. The top fifty percent earners. That means the bottom fifty percent 
pay two point, I think it's like 2.7%. For the ability for the average person to be able to go out and hustle in the free market, make a living, you can't expect them to pay more. We have got to start realizing that our federal government is too large and we can't keep doing this. Well, keep fighting the good fight, Josh. You got a big task on your hands, but the good people of Oklahoma have asked you to do it. This is what I know about you, Josh. You are a man after God's own heart. What people who don't know you, hearing you say, may think like this is rhetoric. This may be, these are things that his constituents want to hear. Let me tell you, these are the same things about faith and and consistency of what you're talking about is the same stuff you were preaching at 18 years old. And so I know that you are a guy after God's own heart for sure. I've seen you be a consistent, good person. You're kind-hearted. You're honest. That last rant didn't sound positive, but I do know. <laughs> I well, do know. Yeah, my team always says, you know, this this pronouncement of fiscal doom. That's why my hope's in God. On our money, purposely, it says in God we trust. Right. So if your hope's in your money, good luck to you. But if your hope's in a higher level that says even in a famine, God preserves his, that's what I believe. Even in a famine, God preserves those that love him, have a heart after him. There's that positive part. There it is. I, I appreciate who you are, Josh, as a person, because you are always the same. Uh, and even when we were young, you know, the the cool thing wasn't uh, to be the guy that was preaching and reading his Bible and being a, a trying to be a good person. It was in pursuing other things, and but you were always that guy. But oh, you, but because it, because of your relate the relationships we we're talking about, your ability to relate to people. You reached a lot of people, including me, for sure. And so I, I, I love you, friend, and thank you for doing this for me. And um, hopefully we can catch up soon. And I love talking about horses, man. I just wish I was, you know, cowboy uh, more days than I am these days. Yeah, well, part of that's about cowboy in the heart too. So you got to, oh, yeah. you got to get out there and tame the wild east. <laughs> All right, buddy. We, 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 <laughs> we appreciate you, Josh. Ben, I sit right here at 420 like I, I, he asked me to do. So we'll go ahead and jump off, and hopefully we can do it again soon. Hey, that's was fun. Tell hey, Ginger I said hi. Tell your folks hi for me. I, I don't. I didn't forget how talented your dad is. He, he's still cowboy, and he is still. We we did a cow deal, so he takes care of what few cows I have left. And, and uh, he's horseback every day. He's replaced the border collies with Catahoula leopard dogs. He, oh man! He loves to see those Catahoula leopards, you know, ball them up. Yeah, Ryan. Ryan's still doing good, and he's he's got he's constantly feeding me new brood mares and stallions. Ryan still eat up with loving horses. Good deal. All right, buddy. Thank you very much. Appreciate you. you too. See you, man. Thank you for joining us on Taking the Reins. A special thank you goes to the Mississippi State Extension Service and the MSU Animal and Dairy Sciences Department. Please visit us on Facebook and Instagram at Taking the Reins Podcast.